Hey guys, it's Miller. Welcome to this installment of Room Dallas Podcast. So glad that you are tuning in. We love our podcast family. We're continuing the Maranatha theme. I unpack the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, my hope and heart is that you hear this with a fresh perspective in regards to a suitor pursuing a prospective bride. If you're blessed by this message, I highly encourage you to get Joel Richardson's book, From Zion to Sinai. It was extremely informative for me. Uh, Maranatha, we looked at the Edemic Covenant. We looked at the Abrahamic Covenant. Here we are at the Mosaic Covenant. Next week, we'll look at the Davidic Covenant. Buckle up. Love you. Thanks for tuning in. I don't know of a, a time at the upper room where I've been teaching in a series where, where I've, I've been as excited to share the revelations that the Lord is uh, giving me. Um, I really want you to take notes. Uh, a lot of times on Sundays, we, you know, we're preachy, we'll, we'll, we may uh, really impart something to you. Uh, in this season, my heart is that you'll you'll be provoked to get in the word. You'll be provoked to take what I'm presenting to you and you'll go on a deep dive yourself. I'm gonna give you resources that I've been using. Uh, I am so excited about what's happening on Sunday nights. This room is filled with millennials. I make them all take out their phone, millennials and Gen Zs. I make them take out their phone and they are writing notes. We're getting into scriptures. They're emailing me texts and resources and I just see the Lord provoking us into something. And it's been centered around this word Maranatha. Uh, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've been hearing the word Maranatha. Maranatha is uh, an Aramaic word, and uh, it was used in the first century church. And it can mean one of three things. The most common uh, understanding of Maranatha is come Lord Jesus. So it's about the future and the Lord coming. The Lord came once, but he's coming again. Amen. And uh, but it could also mean that the Lord came, depending on how the Aramaic is actually positioned, or it could mean Lord come. And we have just been saying it means all three. He came, he's coming, so come. And, uh, and in that Maranatha cry, uh, I wanted to, to, to start to, to dive into the word a little bit, just to see it through, throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation. <clears throat> that all of scripture really points to um, the, Lord, the Lord's return from Genesis 1 onto Revelation 22. And so let, let me just give you a little review. We're going to use the board again. It'll be a little Vanna White here. Uh, <clears throat> but the review is first week we did the covenant of redemption. Uh, redemption just means to repossess something that was lost. And so the covenant of redemption is a covenant that God made with God before anything existed. Uh, God was in covenant with God. Uh, the father initiated a plan that was executed by the Son, uh, that was applied by the Spirit that was happening this morning in the room. But it is a covenant that uh, we've called the Holy Huddle, the three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, had a plan, and it's the foundation for all that exists, which is good news for us today. Yeah. It's good news. That it's not up to you, it's not up to, to, to me. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is established because of the covenant that God made with God this covenant of redemption. You know those scriptures before the foundation of the world? You were chosen to be holy and blameless. Um, that's founded in the covenant of redemption. And so um, I love that. The second week we looked at the problem. Uh, the problem was uh, that there was a talking snake and there was a conflict that <clears throat> creation was birthed into. And that conflict uh, involves God and his adversary. 
And there's a kingdom of light, a kingdom of darkness. And God prophesies when cursing the serpent about two seeds. He said there's going to be a seed of the serpent and a seed that comes through the line of Eve. And that, that, that scripture is threaded throughout the biblical narrative, these two seeds. So last week we looked a thousand years after creation into the Abrahamic covenant. And there are th- uh, two things we pointed out in the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the land that God promised a land to a people. Uh, that land was defined with borders. Uh, we, looked at, um, we looked at the promised land in modern day terms. That, 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 that promised land and promised nation was the nation of Israel. It was Abraham's descendants. Genesis 15, 13, can you put that up? This will transition us into what we're going to talk about today, which is the Mosaic Covenant. So Genesis 15, verse 13. Uh, the Lord prophesies as he's making covenant with Abraham. He says this. He says, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So a thousand years later, uh, this prophecy is fulfilled. The descendants of Abraham would be enslaved by the Egyptians. Uh, Joseph would be sold into slavery. He would end up in Egypt. The brothers would move there, and the Israelites would flourish in the land of Goshen. But after a period of time, they forgot Joseph, his brothers, and they became slaves. And that's where we find ourselves today in the Mosaic Covenant a thousand years later. And my hope this morning is to give you a framework for the Mosaic Covenant that you might not have heard or seen before. Um, I believe the Mosaic Covenant is a, a Hollywood drama. It is a story of a suitor pursuing his prospective bride. And I want you to see the Exodus story through the lens of a lover pursuing a people. And that the law and Mount Sinai was actually a wedding and a marriage. And as you see that, you're going to see that us being the bride us living for the wedding supper of the lamb, it is actually also a fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant that God made with the Israeli people. He's going to marry them as well. So let me pray for us. Jesus, would you come and just illuminate these scriptures this morning? Would you strengthen your servant this morning, I pray, uh, in the name of Jesus? Um, Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Um, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, A resource that's been really helpful for me, I told you I was going to give you resources that I've been reading. Joel Richardson uh, is a phenomenal writer. He's written two books. This one's called When a Jew Rules the World. Um, It talks about the second coming of Jesus and the millennial reign. Another book that has been extremely helpful to today's message is From Sinai to Zion. And so I've taken some of the excerpts from Sinon to Zion. Going to share that with you today. Uh, The suitor pursuing his prospective bride. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God encounters Moses in the burning bush. And he calls him to be a deliverer. And God states his intent for sending Moses to Egypt in verse 12, Exodus 3. 
God tells Moses, certainly I will be with you, sending you into Egypt, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So God was, God desired to bring the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage into the desert to worship him. Uh, But that worship service wasn't just a worship service like today. That worship service was unto a ceremony and unto a covenant. It was unto a wedding. Uh, Joel Richardson says this. He says, the Lord's plan of redemption had an aim. And the ultimate aim of it was reaching people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. But it began with Israel. This is why Jesus would later declare that salvation is from the Jews. It's so critical for Christians to recognize the fact that the imagery of betrothal and marriage, betrothal and marriage, the language of husband and wife does not begin in the New Testament. It began with the Exodus at Mount Sinai. As we're about to see, the covenant between God and Israel at Sinai features all of the most important elements of a marriage and betrothal ceremony, a Jewish ceremony, of course. The covenant with the Israelites was indeed a betrothal covenant seated at the foot of a mountain. And since the Exodus story leads to a wedding, we're not surprised to learn that it begins with a courtship. So I want to show you three phases to God's pursuit of Israel in the Exodus account. Uh, The first one is courtship. As any good relationship begins with, it begins with a man pursuing a woman. Single men, take note of how God pursues his perspective bride. He doesn't wait for him, for her to come to him. He goes after her. <laughs> let's, go. let's go. Some of the women are like, let's go. And, and he states his intentions. So <clears throat> he states his intentions very clearly. Uh, it begins with Yahweh clearly and stating his intention. So this is a key to dating. So you're going to get some key tips. You pursue with intent. And God pursued his prospective bride with intent. And it was, it was not intent just to date, to see what happens. It was an intent to marry her. It was under marriage. And I'll show you that in Exodus 6. Look at this. These are scriptures you've probably heard uh, a lot. <clears throat> But I hope that you'll hear them with a new depth in light of uh, the betrothal theme. So Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham. There's last week, the covenant that he made with Abraham showing up in the covenant that he's going to make with Moses. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. But my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So he's taking the covenant deeper with a specific people. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning, or verse four, I've established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. So the covenant with Abraham and now the covenant with Moses involves the land. The land is really important, especially in the days ahead. 
<clears throat> Furthermore, I've heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant, my covenant with Abraham. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem, key word in this series, the covenant of redemption, here it is, the holy huddle showing up to what? Redeem a people. And I want you to see that these people without the Lord moving could not get out of their condition. They could not get out of their circumstances. They were in bondage. So I'm redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So this is the flex part of the courtship. He's going to pick a fight with his prospective bride's enemies to show them who he is as protector, as defender. Verse seven, so critical for you to see the betrothal language. Then I, Yahweh, will take you, Israel, for my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. So this is covenantal language. You may not be able to see it in the English language, but this, this phrase, I will take you for my people, that's marriage talk. The JPS Torah commentary um, said this. It says, this declaration prefigures the covenant that is to be established at Sinai. The phraseology su- suggests the institution of marriage, a familiar biblical metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel. The first two verbs, to take and to be someone, are both used in connection with matrimony. The second is also a characteristic of covenant language. So previously, before God says, I will take you to be my people, this phrase is used in these men's lives. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. This is Genesis eleven twenty nine In Genesis 21, 21, Hagar, Ishmael's mother, took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Same word, to take a wife. Isaac took Rebekah and she became his wife. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. It is redemption. It is a very special, exclusive, and intimate relationship that he desires with a specific people. The Almighty was signaling Israel out from every other nation or people throughout the world to be his unique, exclusive people. It's critical to understand how the primary theme of Genesis and the primary theme of Exodus are related. It is God creating a chosen people through which he would bring forth the promised one. That Genesis 3.15 is being instituted here. Now that the chosen people had been brought forth, it was time for him to take them out from the other nations and to set them apart as a holy people prepared for their calling. Through Israel, the promised one would come through him. He would redeem the multitudes from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Through him, 
would come the restoration of all things. But before this could happen, he had to cultivate a suitable culture to bring forth the Messiah. This is the genesis of his bride, the people of Israel. So Yahweh, uh, he states his intentions that I'm gonna take you as a wife. And then the second thing is Yahweh flexes his power. Yahweh's gonna show off for them. He, he literally wants to catch the eye of his bride. He displays his power and might, his outstretched arm by hardening Pharaoh's heart. He shows up with the plagues, the water to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the pestilence, the boils, the hail and fire, the locusts, the darkness, then the killing of the firstborn, ultimately unto the deliverance of Egypt. But God is saying, my arm is not too short to deliver you. Yahweh demonstrates that he is a protector, he is a defender, and he is a deliverer. You know, this, this firstborn, it, it's where the Passover meal uh, came forth. And it's the oldest religious Feast. It's 3,500 years old. It's still celebrated today. And it's to remind the Israeli Hebrew people that God delivered them from Pharaoh's bondage. So he doesn't just flex to deliver them uh, out of Israel. Yahweh actually kills his competition. <laughs> he lures them from Egypt to pursue the Israelites the edge of the Red Sea, they're literally trapped and the bride-to-be is filled with fear, complaining to their deliverer, did you just bring us out here to die at the hand of the Egyptians by the sea? And God parts it. The entire millions go through the Red Sea with her enemies pursuing and he destroys them completely. He he didn't just deliver them from her, her enemies. Uh, he put her enemies to utter shame. <clears throat> it's so powerful. So from there, he goes from protector to deliverer to takes them to the wilderness, and he becomes a provider. He provides to reveal his tenderness, his compassions, and his love. Uh, the first thing he does is he sets a canopy, which would be a cloud, which is representative of himself. But that canopy, according to Psalms 105, would literally cover the entire nation. It would shade them from the sun. It would protect, protect them from the elements. Uh, this canopy would be a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was thoughtful. It was caring. It was compassionate. When they were hungry, he gave them manna. He gave them quail when they were thirsty. He provided water from a rock. The Lord is demonstrating his ability to provide for the bride-to-be. Dating tip, get a job. It's true. <laughs> Hosea 13, 5 and 6, it says this, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. See this language. It's throughout Scripture. These, are, these covenants are the backbone that everything else hangs upon. When the prophets show up, they're pointing to 
agreements that God had formally made with his people. And it proves his faithfulness. So Hosea, hundreds of years later, is pointing to this moment. In Hosea 13, 5 and 6, he says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. You were not known. You were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness. Tap into the emotion of this. Tap into the emotion of God pursuing, as a suitor, a bride, pursuing a people that he loves, pursuing one that was beat up, in bondage, destitute, broken, and he says, I'm picking them. You'll see yourself throughout this story. So he takes them to the mountain that he called, uh, where the burning bush was, is Mount Oreb. He, he, he takes them to the foot of this mountain and it's here that it goes from courtship to proposal. And the Lord is going to propose to them in Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19 and 20, it's the center of the Pentateuch. Uh, these are really, really important chapters and, and kind of the, the, the crowning verses of the center of the Pentateuch, which... Um, you know, most rabbis look to these as some of the most important scriptures in the Old Testament and for the Jewish people are found in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, four through six. So uh, we'll, start in verse, we'll start in verse two, but four through six is the most important. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They camped in the wilderness and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you, your sons, have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You saw me flex. You saw me pursue. And how I bore you on the, on the, on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, here's the proposal. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. What is he saying? I've selected you from all the nations to be a nation that's mine, a people that are mine. And he doesn't stop there. He describes what kind of people they will be in verse six. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, set before them all of these words which the Lord had commanded him and all the people unanimously answered together and said, all that you have spoken, we will do. And then Moses goes and reports to the Lord that his perspective bride-to-be has said yes. Even though they had no idea what they were saying yes to. This description is really important. We'll look at it here in just a little bit. But as priests, they were to serve as God's mediators. That's what a priest is. And a priest isn't, uh, it's a kingdom of priests, which is interesting because a kingdom of priests involves a king and a kingdom, but it's a kingdom of priests. It's a prophecy as to what the Davidic kingdom would be. We'll look at that next week, which is an important covenant that God uh, made succeeding this one. 
but it's a kingdom of priests. And so uh, the nation would be a nation that was a kingdom. It would have a king, and that king would be God. And the people, both individually and collectively, would be a priest unto God. But think about this. What do priests also do? They represent God to people. And so Israel as a nation wasn't just called to minister to the Lord, but they were called to reveal the Lord to all the other nations. That they collectively were a priest to the earth to reveal the nature of Yahweh to the earth, ultimately bringing forth that seed of redemption, which would be Yeshua. Douglas Stewart says this, they were not, he's an American, new American commentary, they were not to be a people unto themselves, enjoying their special relationship with God and paying no attention to the rest of the world. Rather, they were to represent him to the rest of the world and attempt to bring the rest of the world to him. And so in Exodus 19, seven and eight, we looked at this, Israel accepts the proposal and now they're betrothed. And so... If you are betrothed, then you prepare yourself for a wedding. Um, the Lord responds to Israel's yes. I, I've just been seeing the poetic nature of this, this uh, pursuit that the Lord has. Deuteronomy, it, it's, it's much more a poetic layout than Exodus, but Deuteronomy's uh, records the Lord's response to Israel's yes. So God says, will you? And they said, we will. And so God responds by saying this in Deuteronomy 5, 28 and 29. I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commands always, that it may be well with them and their sons forever. So God is excited about this covenant. And in Exodus 19, uh, seven and eight, he then uh, tells them to prepare themselves. And, uh, and one of the ways he tells them to prepare themselves in, in, in verse 16, sorry, just before verse 16, uh, he tells them to be ready in three days. And he tells them to wash their garments to prepare for the Lord's coming in three days. And this is a Jewish uh, wedding ritual, which is called a mikvah. A mikvah is just a Jewish ritual cleansing. There's several reasons for mikvahs, but uh, a bride would go through a mikvah. I've, I've researched it this week and I found this, this website. It's called My Jewish Learning. And it says the mikvah before the wedding. This is like modern day, like, you know, what's the show called? She, she picked the dress. What's it called? Yes to the dress. Yes. Okay. So in the My Jewish Learning, when she says yes to the dress, she also says yes to the mikvah. Like she's gonna go through a cleansing process to get herself ready. And it's a time of really processing what you're entering into. And the Lord has his people prepare for the ceremony that's going to ensue. All of this is in Exodus 19. So they set aside their garments, they clean their garments. And... She prepares herself. Uh, Exodus 19, verse 16, is the beginning of the wedding ceremony. 
dun dun ta dun 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 ta dun Here he comes. Verse 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain descended and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people, the bride to meet God and they stood at the foot of the wedding. Now, one of the traditional things in a, a Jewish wedding is a chopa. And uh, that is a, a, a canopy. You, you may have seen this, but Jewish weddings, there's a canopy over the bride and groom. And God provides that in verse 16. By descending in a thick cloud as a canopy, it's set over his bride And the wedding ceremony uh, ensues. And from here, uh, God calls Moses up the mountain. And what do they do? They exchange vows. How do they exchange vows? They write a marriage certificate. What's the marriage certificate? It's what we know as the law. And the law, many times, you know, we, we, we juxtapose grace and law, grace and law. Um, but, but the law at this moment, like it, <laughs> there's a lot of emotion and heart behind what God is saying when you look at it through the betrothal wedding ceremony framework. If you don't see it in the context of a suitor marrying a bride-to-be, it becomes very stoic and it's just like, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. But God's actually setting the terms for a covenantal relationship between a husband and a wife. It's why he starts out saying, you shall have no other gods but me. Why? Because you have one God and that God is your husband. This is Isaiah. (laughs) This is Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 says, uh, verse five, it says, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord, your host, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. It is absolutely exclusive that Israel is going to be his. This gives the language for like in Zechariah and um, I believe it's in the book of Psalms, David in Psalm 17, he talks about Israel being the apple of the Lord's eye. The center of his focus. In Deuteronomy's account of the giving of the law, it says this about this moment. It says, the Lord our God made covenant with us at Oreb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, all of us, who are alive here today, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. So he gives 10 commandments. These 10 commandments are the wedding certificate. In Jewish ceremonies, it would be uh, the ketubah, which is a two-way Jewish marriage contract where the groom makes commitments to the bride and the bride makes commitments to the groom. And typically the contract is to protect the bride. 
And it oftentimes sets a dowry or a price for the bride. And I love this contract because it points to what the Lord is ultimately willing to give for his bride and it would be his own son. He would say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other idols. You shall not worship any other gods for I am a jealous God. You shall not take my name in vain because I'm giving my name to you. You will honor the name that I'm bestowing upon you in the context of marriage. This changes the way you view the vows. The Sabbath is the fourth commandment. It is known in Jewish commentary as a ring or a signet of the vow that they have made. What does a ring represent? A ring represent a covenant that I've made with one person in this room. It makes my relationship with her different than any other relationship on the earth. And this tells the earth that I'm spoken for. And the fourth commandment is Sabbath day. And Sabbath day is the signet ring for Israel. Why? My wife and I, every Wednesday night, we have date night. It's the holiest of holies in the week for us. You cannot touch date night. It's our night. It's protected. It's known. And God was saying this to Israel. He was saying, I don't need a night. I want a day. I want a 24-hour period where we date. (laughs) Where I am yours and you are mine. And you will rest in the work that I've provided for you. Shabbat dinners, we've been doing them regularly. It pronounces to a family regularly who their God is and what he's done for them. It's beautiful. These layers that can become stoic and dry and ritualistic, but it's all centered around this God's passion and desire to be with a people. And it started with this nation. This is the first fruits This is why it's to the Jew first. They are a unique people. So the wedding vows. And then, so one through four are vertical and under the Lord, five through 10 are then, if you're married to me, then you're going to, it's going to be expressed in love for one another. And that's societal law and how you uh, love each other. So, The relationship is overwhelmingly defined as exclusive between God and Israel. Uh, Israel agrees to the the marriage contract in Exodus 24.3 when Moses comes down. uh, Moses came and recounted to all the people all the words. And uh, they with one voice said, the words which you have spoken, we will do. And it shows you how fickle the Israelites are because we know what happened in the first writing of the marriage certificate. Uh, from, this, from this point forward, uh, Moses, after he gets the law, um, as in any good Jewish wedding, there's a feast. So in Exodus 24, God tells Moses, take the 70 elders up the mountain. And they walk up the mountain and it says, they sat in the glory, they ate and they drank. It's the feast. And then God calls Moses to himself for 40 days. But during those 40 days, we know what happens. The bride at the wedding ceremony 
commits adultery. How heart-wrenching is that? But how loving and merciful is God? He wants to destroy him. He tells Moses, I'm done. I'm just going to choose you. <laughs> You're it. You're the only plan. I'm killing all of them. And Moses intercedes. And the Lord changes his mind, has mercy upon them, and reinstitutes that covenant with them. It's so beautiful. So that's the marriage covenant. They have the stone to remember their certificates. So why is this important for us? We're not in that covenant. We're in a new covenant. Here's why. We can see ourselves in the story. Uh, our Egypt. Well, look at this. In Hebrews chapter 12, with that imagery of the mountain in Hebrews 12, verse 18, uh, the writer of Hebrews would say this, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet, into the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, for they could not cope with the command, if an animal touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. It was such a terrible sight that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion, meaning that picture was a prototype of something else. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Your Egypt was sin. Your Pharaoh was the seed of the serpent. Your Red Sea was water baptism. Your Mount Sinai was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Your deliverer was not Moses. His name was Jesus. The law that he wrote wasn't written on stone. According to Hebrews, it was written on your heart now by the Spirit. Look at this language in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Look at this. He says, but you, speaking to the New Testament church, 1 Peter verse 2, I want you to see this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We just read that in Exodus 19. So that you may proclaim who? The excellencies of Jesus who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but you now have received mercy. See yourself in this story. So does this mean that we replaced them? It's really important. Because the Maranatha cry, it's, he came, he's coming, so come. So what does this mean for us in light of what is to come? What does it mean for the Jewish people? And how do we partner in understanding with what God's going to do in the future? Well, I want to propose to you, I've, I've said all of that in giving you this backdrop because I want us to see the end times. If you don't know this, my aim at presenting these covenants to you is so that you can see the coming 
move of God. I want you to be prepared to partner with the Lord in understanding for his return. We're closer today than we ever have been. We can confidently say that, amen? No matter what your eschatology is, we can all agree on that. But I believe as Daniel chapter 12, verse three, it says, in the last days, knowledge will increase. Revelation will increase around his return. And I think we can find the end times in these covenants, in the Abrahamic covenant, in the covenant of redemption, and then the Mosaic covenant. And so I wanna show you just one line. I could look at a number of things and we'll unpack this. We're gonna keep squeezing this revelation to get as much as we can out of this. But I wanna look at one line from Moses' last song to the nation of Israel because we'll see the Maranatha cry in a song that he gave the people in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So in Deuteronomy 32, verse 18, check this out. I'm gonna read it out of my Bible too, Art. Deuteronomy 32. Start in 15, my brother. Look at this, but... Jeshurun, so this is a poetic name for Israel. So don't get confused by that name. That's not like <laughs> Jethro's brother. It's Jeshurun is Israel. So see this, he's speaking of Israel. It's a very poetic, intimate name um, in the Hebrew. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. Keep going. Uh, they made God jealous with strange gods. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed. This is in the midst of a song which it talks about the deliverance and the wedding, but then it talks about where they would go. Uh, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Look at verse 19. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the uh, provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. Verse 21, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So this verse, no, go back. This verse, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Uh, the new international version says this, I will make them envious by those who are not a people, I will make them angry by a nation who has no understanding. The living translation actually says this, that I will provoke their anger through the foolish Gentiles. Here we are. So this, this may mean nothing. Like it's kind of a weird, it's, you know, it's pretty intense scripture where Moses is prophesying what would come. He's prophesying what would come. Like, you're gonna forget the rock that you're hone out of. Like, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take my love and I'm gonna put it on another people to provoke you to jealousy. So Paul taps into this in Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, this is the Maranatha cry. 
In Romans 11, verse, verse 11, it says, And I say then that they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make them what? This is a fulfillment of that prophecy in Deuteronomy 31. So by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Verse 17 is awesome. It says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you becoming a wild one or grafted in among them, became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Hebrew people. David is, Jesus is the root of David. So, so keep, keep going. Verse 25, here's the Maranatha cry. Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery. He's talking about the salvation of the Jews. I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial partial hardening has happened to Israel until, everyone say until. So here's one of the things that will, here's one of the things I want us to look at uh, in this series at some point, I need to hit that button, is this word. In the Maranatha message, the word until is so important because there's, there's things that are crescendoing. Scripture says that there hasn't been these until moments. And Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25 is one of those untils. And it's until the fullness of who? The Gentiles. And when the fullness of Gentiles comes, look at this, verse 26. All Israel will be saved. What does that say? Some of Israel? It says all of Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. So in the Maranatha theme of what's to come, and we could talk about the fullness of Gentiles and what that means. There's a number of ways to interpret that. I believe it, to me, it's why we've got to preach the gospel. To me, it's, to me, uh, the, the Gentiles coming to salvation, the Gentiles coming to Jesus will provoke the Jews under their Messiah, but it will also lead to an until where there will be a revival among the Hebrew people. There will be a revival because it's not, they're not going to be saved some other way. They're going to be saved through Yeshua. And so the Maranatha theme, I'm just going to give you a timeline and then we're going to pray for each other. Has this been helpful? I feel like it's just very, okay, so we have redemption. We went through that. You're taking notes. Follow me. This is the covenant of redemption. We have the seeds prophesied. The seeds start with Abraham. We just looked at the mosaic. 
Next week, we're going to look at the Davidic. These are all covenants. Then we have Jesus, the new covenant. Then we have the church age, which we're in today. Look at that. And this speaks of the fullness of time for the Gentiles. And this will lead to Jews turning to Jesus. Which will ultimately usher in the second coming of Christ. Now between, between the fullness of time and the Gentiles and the second coming is a time period called the tribulation, which we haven't talked a ton about. But in that time, you'll see a lot of activity around the nation of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the Bible pro uh, prophesies that a third temple will come, that the law will be reinstituted in ways that um, we have not seen. And if you look at what's happening in the Jewish world specifically, they have plans for a third temple. Like they have all the furnishings. They're currently training priests for uh, animal sacrifice. Like all they're looking for is the lot of land. And there's a lot of questions as to where that could be. Not getting too much into that today, but I do want you to see how the Mosaic covenant points to the new covenant, which ultimately points to the second coming of Jesus. When he returns for the wedding supper of the lamb, he is going to marry Gentile and Jew. There will be one new man with one Messiah. The Mosaic covenant Abrahamic covenant. Next week's the Davidic covenant, which my hair's on fire already for. My prayer is that you'll take this and dig in the word. Get in the word. I know this is really deep for a Sunday morning, but we need, we need this. So if you don't know Jesus, Jesus, Jesus came to do what you could not. He, he came to be in relationship with you. He wants to be in covenant with you. He wants you to know him as he desired the Israelites to know him. He wants to marry you. <laughs> and you do that by faith, just accepting him as Lord and Savior. So I'm going to invite our...